My name is Beto Gudinho, and welcome to the Christian Podcast. And my name is Beto Gudinho as well. We are going to interview the author of The Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Information for the Sake of Our Neighbor, by Caitlin Chess. Are we in the end times? <laughs> Is that a real question for me? <laughs> yes. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Okay, why not? <laughs> I mean, I guess in a, in a certain sense, yes, in the sense that the the return of Christ is imminent, and we are in the end times. In a in a certain sense, the way Jesus talked to to his disciples about. But um, I don't think that we can really make pretty harsh judgments about things like that. I don't think that we're supposed to be predicting the time or looking at the the signs in a way a lot of people do, and um, and and especially not in a fearful way that a lot of people tend to. So I think I think I can say no with the asterisks of I'm not certain. <laughs> nice. Caitlin Scheiss, welcome to the Christian Podcast and welcome everyone that's watching. My name is Beto Gudinho, broadcasting a signal of hope right here from the bunker in Costa Mesa, California. And today's guest, well, you already heard it. She's in Texas, but she's from Colorado. And she's the author of The Liturgy of Politics, a spiritual formation for the sake of our neighbor, And I've been reading this book. Actually, I have it right here. It's so good. I'm looking at the other <laughs> camera, but it's so good. Highly recommend it. Check it out. Uh, plus, you no, know, the cover is just attractive and, and beautiful. I like the colors. This is so good. How do you feel writing this book? Good and, um, you know kind of frightened going into a contentious election season in the U.S. and feeling like, you know, this was um, not going to make everyone happy all of the time. But I felt pretty convinced that, um, you know, a couple of years ago when I started that God had had laid this message on my heart and I was just trying to be faithful and follow through and um, hasn't always been easy. But I've, I've heard a lot of good feedback from it that's been encouraging, for, especially from people who are trying to have hard political conversations with their friends and family members and, and people at church and have found better language to have that conversation for the book. That's the most encouraging thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 beautiful. I love reading it because I feel like almost like this podcast, like we're just chatting, because mm -hmm. you have so much like con uh, cultural context, but also it, it's full of you know like um, scriptural references. So it's very rich. Highly recommended to people listening. Go check it out. And of course, as I'm reading it, you know, I I, I felt like, why am I reading a book on politics? <laughs> and I want to tell you a little bit about, I don't know if this happened to you, but growing up, I feel like I never really cared about politics. You know, I don't know if this happens to every kid in the world. Like we're just kids and we grow up and whatever. And I don't know if now, because I'm older, I'm like paying more attention and you know, who wins elections or who's running for what in different you know, places of the country or even across the world. And Is that because I'm just older or or why, right? But I love that, you know, I just had to come um, to confront myself with this question. And, and, and I think 
I think I would love to know more about politics. And that's why I picked up this book, you know, because the same thing you were saying first, you know, that when we are at tables, the conversation pops out, right? And especially like you were saying, we just had a, a contentious uh, presidential election here in the U.S. And, you know, the conversations were everywhere I went. Everyone's talking about politics, right? On all the sides you can imagine. Um, and I don't want to give power to, you know, to names. Uh, but why is the... I, I love how you just started the book. You said the adjective adjectives or adjectives sorry sometimes my mm -hmm. my spanish comes across <laughs> in my brain um the adjectives for church and you say you said something like the american church like why do we have to put american as an adjective for the church why caitlin show us some light <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean part of it's just recognizing that the church in different places in the world at different times has been shaped by the place that it's in. And um, there can be positive things about that in the sense of, you know, missionaries going to a place and sharing the gospel with people and then saying like, well, in your particular cultural expression, you know, you can celebrate things about your culture in the context of worship of the church and, and you sharing the gospel in your own context and things like that. And then there's the negative sides of it, of places and times where the church has been negatively shaped by the place that they're in, either by kind of being in a country where it's like, you know, the most important thing is loyalty to that country and your patriotism, even your nationalism, um, using the, the church or the faith of individual people to kind of support negative things that the country wants to do. And, and I think in America, we can say it's been both, that there's like distinctly American things about churches in America um, that are good and some things that are bad. And it can be helpful for us to say, I think, especially when I was writing the book, I was thinking there are things I want to say about the church, but I want to say American. And sometimes I even say white because that doesn't apply to all churches. <laughs> there are churches all around the world that are not doing the same things that churches in America tend to do or having some of the same problems that churches in America tend to have. Um, and so part of it for me was an acknowledgement of like, I don't want to step outside of my place and try and say things to churches and other places that this isn't true. Um, and also to kind of speak to like my people. Like I, I grew up kind of all around the U.S. I was a military kid. And so there were things about churches all over the country that were similar and trying to pull those out and say, um, not to just say all of those churches are bad, but to say, what are things where we've been negatively shaped um, by the country that we are in, the cultures that we're in, and how can we repent of those things? How can we learn from those things? How can we um, grow and be better and respond and be more cognizant of the place that we are in and how it could be both negative and positive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because I, I grew up in, oh, every episode I say this, but I grew up in Guadalajara, Mexico. Uh, it's a city in the state of Jalisco. So kind of like almost like central and to the west of Mexico. But interestingly enough, you know, Mexico is like 90 whatever percent Catholic, right? And I grew mm. up actually in a Protestant home. Um, and yes, like you're saying, you know, I remember growing up and going to church, of course, and this church was influenced by American missionaries, right? Because mm. they planted the church. And it's interesting because you know how here in America, like you're saying, you're traveling as a um, a military kid and like seeing like all these different types of churches and you see the similarities, right? And I could imagine you coming to that church in Mexico and finding a very, very, very similar 
um, <laughs> tone to some of the churches here in America. So for like one example, I don't know if you, I, I mean, I'm sure, but do you remember that um, like the Christian flag? Mm -hmm. It's like blue and like Turkish blue with white yeah. and then it's like a red cross somewhere. Uh-huh. Right? So you go to an American church, some places, right? Not everywhere, but you go and then there's that flag on the left and then there's the American flag on the right. Yeah. And then uh you know the preacher in the middle or whatever. Well, in Mexico in my church, we had the Mexican flag <laughs> and we had the Christian flag, right? So I guess in a sense, it's it's representing that, you know, those missionaries come in and, hey, you got to be, not not you got to be, you know, but if they were proud of their nation and stuff, it's like, oh, you know, mm. you should be proud of, of being Mexican and also having the flag. Yeah. But it's a very, now it, it seems like a very, well, to at least to me, it almost seems odd, you know, that a church would have any type of flag. Even the yeah. Christian flag you know, <laughs> looks a little, um, yeah, I, I don't know, weird, but. Tell me about this, this ideas that you talk about in your book. And I mean, it's, ah, there's so much in the book where I could go, but I love the idea of ultimacy versus penultimacy. And now some of the things I wrote here, I even forgot where I got them from. I mean, they're from your book, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. now as I'm reading them, I'm like, how did I come up with that? So for example, I'm going to tell you one thing I kind of, um grab by reading your book and then i said oh this is something i want to make a goal for christian podcast and i'm gonna read it because then i was like oh this is pretty cool so by reading your book you somehow inspire my mind to say christian podcasts our goal is to broadcast hope in a non-propositional way but mm. through conversation empathy and respect and then in um parentheses i put peacemaking and now i'm reading this i'm like what <laughs> did i write that but it's it was inspired by by your book and what you wrote so tell me about this these ideas of ultimacy penultimacy and i love the idea of proposition i don't know i think this is a little um no different idea but propositional information mm -hmm. data yeah. uh, versus effective information But uh, can you just elaborate a little bit on those? Yeah, yeah. So the idea of, of kind of ultimate goods, like as Christians, we would say, you know, the our salvation, the redemption of creation, the worship of God, what it really means to be a flourishing human who is oriented towards love of God and, and love of neighbor. Um, and then there's like penultimate things like um, physical security or financial, you know, prosperity or um, even like, you know, really basic things like, uh, you know, relationships that you have with individual people or things that are good in your life, and yet they are not ultimate good things. And we get them often confused. And part of the heart of the book was to say, in politics, we're usually seeking penultimate things, right? We, we're voting for someone because they will keep our community safe, or they'll, oh, yeah. you know, cut taxes, and that will help us financially, or that will, and those, those penultimate goods can be like, really positive things like education in public schools or like those are those are really positive things and yet when we kind of twist the order of things and make those penultimate things ultimate things that's when we get in trouble if 
physical security is a good thing. It's not an ultimate good thing, but when you make it an ultimate good thing, you can justify anything else to get it. And so that's when you can harm other people. You can, you know, put gates around your community to keep itself safe. You can kind of do things that are harmful to people because you've taken this thing that is a good thing and you've made it an ultimate good thing and you've worshiped it in a certain sense. The same could be said about financial prosperity. And part of what's difficult about politics is that all these penultimate goods get treated as ultimate goods because we're so emotionally affectively involved in politics there's a story that is given to us it's never just like you said propositional information you when you see a campaign ad or you hear a politician speak you're never just searing you know it would be really boring if a campaign ad was just like black background white text and it said you know this politician is good because of these reasons it was very logical this politician is bad for these reasons if a politician stood up and you know a stage and said you know very monotonely like here's the financial here's all of the economic information about why my tax plan will you know oh, that's yeah. not usually what happens usually the campaign ad is like dark scary pictures associated with the one person that we're telling you not to vote for and like <laughs> the music swells and there's like it's really affect it's trying to get you you to be afraid. And then if it's a positive campaign ad, the example that I give sometimes is Ronald Reagan, when during his reelection campaign in the in the 80s, had this ad called It's Morning in America, where it was like rolling hills and a white picket fence family, you know, moving into their new home and uh, farmers, you know, working on their fields. And it was this really beautiful picture. And there was economic statistics, you know, overlaying all those pictures, but no one was paying attention to that. They were paying attention to the way these images and the sounds and the emotions, like all of that was captivating their hearts on a different level. And so um, the important thing is that it's not just to say, oh, you're being emotionally swayed, you should be more logical. It's to say that human beings were made to have both reason and emotion. And we are always formed by both of those things. And too often the church has responded to politicians, to advertisers, to the media that are forming us affectively. And the church has responded with information. Here's a Bible verse. Here's a sermon. Here's just, you know, an explanation of the right way that you should do things. Instead of saying, well, part of the way the church has typically responded is by telling us really vibrant stories, by having us use our bodies in worship, by singing songs, by using conversations and emotion. And, and those are really powerful tools. And it's not to say that one is better than the other, but it's to say that politics helps us take these penultimate things and make them ultimate because it draws on our affections and the church needs to respond in kind because that's how humans were made to function. That's how we tend to work. Yeah. Oof. I just want to say you're brilliant. You know, I, I yeah. love it. You know, I, I feel like, wow, there's so much to learn and I'm almost, um, I would not commend you and I'm almost like just very grateful and thankful that you are voicing out, um, this matters because I feel like they're super important and and you're taking a very I don't know like you're saying you know like I feel called to write this book and you know it might have come with its own you know, struggles and hardships and uh, challenges but you did it you know and as you as you uh, as it's out now and people can <laughs> read it I feel like oh it's it's so refreshing and People can learn so much, but I also love that you know, your focus is not just the, oh, we're just going to talk about politics. You really have um, orientation, I would say, to the, you know, to why politics matter 
and also to why why God created us with these affiliations, right? And and yeah. you talk about in your book about you know how we are, you know the commandment in the garden to you know kind of like take care of things in nature and and uh, you know Adam and Eve naming animals and you know kind of like taking care of their surroundings. Mm-hmm. In a sense, that's political, right? That's governance. Yeah. And and that's why politics is important. I love when you talk about the analog versus the digital. And I don't know if you talk. Yeah, I don't think you talked of this, but like I'm a musician and I see a lot of resurgence with the whole vinyl thing. Yeah. Right. So I grew up in the 80s. I remember listening to my dad's vinyl albums you know by the Beatles or the Eagles or whatever this is all in Mexico which is which is amazing but you know <laughs> he had the the whatever thing that spins it's called with the speakers and I remember putting on my headphones like oh let's check out his music you know so whether it was the Beatles to you know Beethoven or whatever I was like oh this is awesome and then we went through the whole you know getting rid of tapes then CDs came And now, 30 or 40 years later, we're back to like people wanting like this, this analog experience versus a digital, right? Where do you mm-hmm. think this comes from? Where do you think we're we're um, especially you know as I see that you're super young, um, and, and you're giving a really fresh voice, you know, to the world. Uh, where do you think this comes from? This idea of uh, analog versus digital, and like going back to the analog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people, you know, young people are just interested in something that feels like it is more human, like something that requires a little more work, that has a more connection to who actually made it. And so both like the, you know, resurgence of interest in vinyl, but also like people buying a lot more stationery. They've done like studies that have shown people want to write more letters instead of sending emails or they wow. want to, um, this is also true in the church that people are drawn more to traditions that seem older to them or more traditional. Like they want to go to a church that sings old hymns that uses, you know, bells and smells and, and is just a little more liturgical and things like that. And I think really part of what it is, is that for people who grew up fully in internet, social media, digital worlds, there's something intriguing about it. Like it just seems foreign to them in a way that's funny to people, you know, to their parents or grandparents who are like, wait, the, the social media world, the internet, like that feels new to me, but to people who've yeah. grown up in it, it's like, oh, that's old, you know, old hat. <laughs> but I also think yeah. there's just something about being drawn to things that feel more connected to tradition and things that feel more rooted in something like everything changes so quickly with technology. Now, social media changes so quickly, even what like apps people are on and how they communicate all so, you know, quickly changing. I think a lot of young people are like, I want to do something that feels rooted in the past. Like it's not going to just float away as things change. It's going to be connected to something larger than myself. And then I apply that in the book to thinking about how churches that are desperate to keep young people. That's always a conversation. You know, I work in a local church. We're always talking about like, how do we keep young people? How do we get young people interested? And the people who are older than me tend to think, We get cooler coffee, we, you know, get a fog machine, we do things that feel like young and hip and new. And I'm like, I don't think that they can get that anywhere. They can go to a really cool coffee shop, they can go to a concert. What they're really looking for is something that feels rooted in the past. And so it's not just about them, it's about something bigger than themselves. And so an interest in older things, things that actually require your hands to create. I think that's another like part of this too. People are interested in like 
embroidery and like, you know, making things with wood. And like, there's just an interest in like craft Mm -hmm. and, and tradition. And it's not just the old part. I think it's also realizing my entire life is lived, especially right now during, you know, COVID-19, my entire life can be lived online. And there's, I think, a looking for something that requires our bodies, that requires our hands to make things, that puts us in community with real people face to face. And I think especially as we move out of COVID-19, like if that, you know, hopefully <laughs> continues to happen, then I think people will continue to be looking for things that feel older, that feel personal, that feel like it requires their bodies and their their hands to make things and their being face-to-face with other people. Wow, that's amazing. I was thinking the other day about this idea of um, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so basically the right beliefs and then the right actions, right? And I, I just had this image of orthodoxy being, let's say, the moon and orthopraxy, the sun. And then this beautiful image of how those two come together in a solar, no, full solar eclipse. Mm. And they match perfectly, right? And and I feel like when I think of Jesus, to me, he's that perfect image. He's like the sun and the moon combining into one. And that's what I would call congruency or uh, there's another word, um, uh, in- integrity, right? Mm. Uh, when when the right set of beliefs are lived out and, yeah. and put into action, right? So I think, no, it makes more sense. And I wanted to ask you about this idea of uh, somewhere in the book, you talk about like um, the hypocritical uh, kind of uh, approach to things. Let me see if I have it here. Yeah. What is the opposite of hypocrisy? Do you think, do you think integrity or or um, like living out what you believe, putting it into action or into practice. Do you think that's the opposite of hypocrisy, or you no? Know, just elaborate a little bit on this idea that you were talking about. How sometimes we are, or where this comes from, hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think especially. I think you're right. That is the that would be the opposite of it. Is and I don't think we often think about that. I think we tend to especially, you know, the book is about politics. A lot of people are looking at the church in America and thinking, you said all these things about politics. You said that character matters. You said that you should live out your faith and your voting. And then we haven't seen you be consistent in that. We've seen you do that sometimes and then not other times, maybe when it was politically helpful for you or when it got you more power or when, you know, you felt like you needed to in the moment, you were willing to kind of forsake your principles for the sake of, of a political goal. And I think a lot of times people go, okay, well, we've been really hypocritical in our politics. We've, we've said something and then we've done something else. And so the answer to our hypocrisy is to just not be involved in politics because we messed it up. It wasn't good. Let's just not get involved. And I think the way you described it is good and right of, well, the opposite of hypocrisy in politics is not total absence and apathy and disengagement. The opposite is integrity in politics, which means we say the same things that we do. We show that when we said, you know, what we said about a Republican politician, we would also need to say about a Democratic politician. We wouldn't apply the standards to different people at different times, depending on what was helpful for us. We would say, If character matters in one election, it matters in the next election. If we really care about the most vulnerable when it comes to, you know, abortion, we care about the most vulnerable when it comes to people who are sick and dying, who are being mistreated, who are, you know, and that's consistency and it's coherence and it's also integrity. Um, And I think what we've too often done is thought, 
we will just be right all the time. If we believe the right things, we'll act rightly. Instead of recognizing that acting rightly requires a lot of practice too, that it requires formation, that just knowing the right things doesn't automatically mean you'll act the right way. And we know that to a certain extent, like we'll read the Bible and we'll like, we'll read about the Pharisees and we'll be like, oh, they knew all the right things, but they didn't act well. They didn't treat other people well. And yet we don't think about that for ourselves. <laughs> we see other Pharisees out there, but we don't recognize that it's actually really easy to believe the right things and act wrongly. And the answer to that is not just learning more things so that you believe even more right things. The answer to that is saying, okay, well, what, what is shaping my heart? What is shaping my affections, my desires, my fears, my loves? And how do those things shape how I act in the world? And how can I make sure that I'm being formed in the right way? That the songs I sing in church, the practices I have in the church, the spiritual disciplines I have, that those are shaping me in the right way because I can't, I, I can know the right things and act wrongly. And I don't think we get it. We see that in other people. We don't get a good sense of that in ourselves. And we might think about that individually or personally when it comes to our relationships um, or our families, but we need to think about it when it comes to politics too, that it's really easy to believe the right things and act wrongly. And we have to be more intentional about our formations so that we're being shaped in such a way that we can say the right things when we're asked what we believe and then act the right way as well. Yeah. Wow. So phenomenal. I love it. Um, uh You talk about, I, you do it in a funny way, but you say that you guys did some exercises when you were in school and that, well, I, I don't remember exactly what you were talking about, no, that, that you guys were practicing, but it says at the end of our, whatever we're doing, it always ended up in nuclear war. Do you remember when yeah. you wrote that? <laughs> okay. And then you talk about um, the language of fear and what is idol worship reversal and the idea of fear and hypnosis as tools of terror. Oh, I was reading this. I'm like, I mean, first it was just, it's just kind of funny, you know, that, that to say that you are, uh, you know, you're, you're having your own debate or whatever, and it ended up in nuclear war and just the, how we are as humans, right? When I think of even <laughs> um, scripture and I think of Cain and Abel who are brothers And then ended up having the ultimate fight. And all they had, you know, they didn't have you no know, chemical weapons. They didn't have any other yeah. tools other than their own hands. And it ends up tragically, right? So from the get-go, humanity starts, you know, kind of like looking at each other. And, and uh, I mean, there's, there's beauty, right, from the beginning. But uh, tell me about this idea of, like, the language of fear. What is idol worship reversal? Fear and hypnosis as tools of terror. Yeah, yeah. The the example that I gave was, yeah, being in um, high school and then in college doing debates and having the, you know, competitive debate about something like environmental policy or, you know, some tariff against another country. And you would have a conversation, you know, you have a debate about is this a policy, is this policy good or bad because it helps the environment or it hurts the economy or it helps these people or it hurts these people. But those were not good enough impacts. They always had to eventually escalate to the point of nuclear war. So you've got one nuclear war scenario against another nuclear war scenario. And, and it was such a picture to me of how that constrains our choices when the impacts are that high you know and we do this every election we say this is the most important election of your lifetime you know if this person wins it's the literal end of the world if this person wins it's the literal end of the world on both <laughs> sides kind of make these like really intense you know claims about you know the your way of life 
your community, the things that you matter that matter most to you, those things will all be gone if this person wins. And we do that because it's effective. If you scare people, they will respond in that kind of way because their choices feel constrained. You know, if both candidates have some good things and some bad things and you have to make a faithful choice, it gives people options. It lets them be creative. It makes them, you know, think through all of the different issues. There's not, you know, one that takes preeminence over the other. They're kind of working things out. But if one person is going to lead to the end of the world and the other person isn't, your choices are constrained. You're, of course, you're going to vote for the person that isn't going to lead to the end of the world. But if we were more honest about the fact that neither of those things are true, then maybe we could be a little more, you know, have a conversation with someone who disagrees with us. If, the, if their candidate they're supporting isn't going to lead to the literal end of the world, maybe I can actually understand where you're coming from. Maybe I can actually have a conversation with you. Um, and that's why in politics, they tend to use those tools. You know, when I said earlier about a campaign ad that's really scary, black and white images of, you know, uh, of a crime happening or of a community, you know, right now, because there's been so many protests, they'll, they'll typically use footage of that. You know, here's a big protest that's really scary someone starts a fire there's people fighting those are the images that scare people and there's a lot of psychology behind this that says that when people are really afraid and again because it's not just information that's given to you in a propositional way you're not just reading on a screen you know x candidate will cause this thing you're seeing it very viscerally mm -hmm. your body has a response to that that you might not even be aware of like your natural response to that kind of threat is self-protection and so you will disregard everything else to protect yourself or maybe if the threat is against your community or your family to protect your community or your family um, and that's good if you were actually in danger like if you were walking down the street someone's going to attack you and your your bodily response is to protect yourself that's a positive thing that's a good thing about how we were made but if you're sitting in your living room and there is no actual threat, but an ad comes on that tells you that your community is literally going to be up in flames and your neighbors are going to be killed and everything's going to be horrible, your body has that same kind of response. Wow. And so it's a powerful tool. It's helpful for politicians because it causes you to respond the way that they want you to. And yet for Christians, not only is do not fear, you know, such a frequent command that Jesus gives his followers, but he also presents sacrifice and self sacrifice as the as one of the ultimate good things for you to do so when you're presented with something to be afraid of very often the response at least in scripture especially in the new testament is you sacrifice for other people you know threats come in you don't protect yourself you sacrifice yourself for the sake of other people but that's a response that you have to learn to have that has to be practiced you have to work to get there your body's natural response is not to do that and so when it comes to politics we have to really relearn how to take in information about politics because we want to be informed. We don't want to block all of it out, but how to do it in a way that we train ourselves to not respond to that kind of fear with the natural response that we might have to be able to pick apart. Well, what are they really trying to get me to be afraid of? Is that something I really should consider? Or is that a fear that's not really a legitimate fear? How do I make sure that those fears aren't impacting not just the way I vote, but then when I'm serving in a community, but I've been taught to fear that community, I'm not going to serve them very well. Or if I'm trying to deal with some issue when it comes to, you know, a public school system or serving in a, you know, socioeconomic bracket that's not my own, if I've been taught to fear those people, I'm not going to be able to serve them well. I might not even try and serve them well. And so really working through as Christians, not only how to, how to pick apart those messages of fear, but how to train ourselves in our spiritual disciplines, in our worship, in the songs we sing, in the prayers that we pray, to not be afraid and to practice self-sacrifice for the sake of other people. And, and this is, I mean, when you talk about these, these uh, commercials, right, or these, uh, yeah, whatever, TV commercials or ads mm -hmm. or whatever, 
is that part of the when you say hypnosis is that part of that or is hypnosis i mean to me hypnosis sounds like you know a guy you know waving the little thing and saying you're gonna obey me <laughs> you're gonna do what i want uh, but you know as i started communications long ago but i did um study communications and we were you know even like talking about this i forgot what it's in english because i started in mexico so it was everything yeah. spanish right but it's called something like the hypodermic um needle if i don't know if uh. it translates like that but uh-huh. um but we i mean we would talk about like hitler back then right all the time and this idea of how it was almost like hypnotic that people would yeah. start believing a a message and and not see a different reality in front of their eyes like they could it, it's almost like it's almost like you're obeying almost like as a robot right like oh you know yeah. i'll obey your commands is that what you're talking about with this with this uh idea of fear and and commercials and hypnosis or were you talking about something else yeah i think in the book the hypnosis line comes from a quote where um it's a couple of of scholars talking about what happened during the cold war and the threat of nuclear weapons and they describe the way that that threat operated with people as a kind of hypnosis. Like when we are in a constant state of just at any moment, a nuclear bomb could come and we would all be dead, that there's a certain sense in which you just respond the way you've been told to respond. You don't really have an ability to respond in the way that you think you will. And and really part of what their point was, was these tools we created, these nuclear weapons that we thought we would own and control ended up controlling us. Mm. Because once you have this tool, it limits your options, right? Like if you're gonna go into a conflict and your options are you know, a really messy war where you're gonna have to send soldiers and it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna cost you a lot of human life. Um, just, you know, it costs you a lot and you hope it hurts them, but it's gonna cost you a lot too. But your other option is a nuclear weapon that hurts them, but doesn't cost you anything those really don't seem like two equal options anymore, you know? So your options are constrained in the sense that you, you, you no longer have to make as many difficult choices between different things that are risks or costs to you. You have this option that's just hanging there and they have that option too. And you're aware of that. And mm-hmm. so they're trying to describe how idols work in the same kind of way. You think that you're controlling this idol and in the end it ends up controlling you because it tells you how you have to sacrifice for it. And they make that comparison with nuclear weapons. And even though we don't, you know, we're not living in the cold war anymore. Part of their point is fear is incredibly powerful because when you're afraid of a nuclear, you know, attack, (laughs) you're going to respond in a different way than if you're afraid of something else. That, that fear is so high, it will cause you to respond in ways that you think are your own choices. And yet you're kind, it's almost like you're hypnotized. You're just kind of responding the way that you have been taught to respond. Um, And so for us, I think we would say, even though we're not living in the cold war, we have to recognize that on a much smaller scale, when it comes to seeing ads like that, hearing politicians speak, et cetera, we have to recognize that we might think that we're responding with our own choices. You know, I'm doing what I want to do. Mm. And yet, is there a sense in which they've kind of told you how to respond and you have to, to work out of that fear response to, to kind of get to a more faithful response, to figure out how a Christian would really respond instead of just how people are supposed to respond to fear like that. Yeah. And when you said, you know, that Jesus commands us again and again, you know, do not fear. I can't help but think of, the days of early Christianity and mm-hmm. and even you know the times of Jesus right after his 
his resurrection, people are in the upper room with doors closed because they're afraid. Yeah. And he shows up, um, didn't have to open the door. <laughs> so to freak them out a little bit more, uh, he shows up, but he says, right, do not fear. And again and again, you know, in the, in the, when he's on the water and, you know, Peter walks on water and stuff, always, you know, the command, do not fear, it is I. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, how as er the early Christians practice, I would imagine these early Christians before Jesus shows up in the middle of that upper room, probably talking about politics right probably talking about oh man you know now we're in big trouble now you know rome is going to be after us or even you know our jewish um the, the jewish council is going to be after us uh so there is like you're saying right it, it's like fear teaches us how to respond and i can't help but <laughs> this is just me uh but correlating that to like the powers and principalities of yeah. this world Right. And how you no know, Paul would say, you know, we, we don't have a fight against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and how even as, you know, Jesus faces the temptation. I know, I know you're a church or you're a content creator and you're looking for those royalty free songs so that you don't get all those strikes when you try to put a video on Facebook or YouTube or any other social media. Well, I have the solution for you because Soundstripe offers me royalty-free music, sound effects, and video. And if you go now and enter promo code Christian podcast as one word Christian podcast you are gonna get 10% discount on your Soundstripe subscription so go to christianpodcast.com and click on the tab that says royalty free music sound effects and video and it'll take you to Soundstripe enter promo code Christian podcast and get 10% discount in in the desert like one of the temptations is hey i'll, I'll kind of like i'll give you the kingdoms right i'll give mm -hmm. you all this the city that you see will be yours just bow down and worship me and like you're saying how the idol uh turns on turns us around and we end up obeying the idol right but it, it like the question is like how how do we know when when we are facing an idol right how can we differentiate mm. that oh you know i'm i'm being told what to do versus i mean i i personally think that's the job of the holy spirit right but if you don't have it how can you yeah. tell <laughs> how can you differentiate what's in front of you and how you know how com to come out of fear is government ultimately corrupt yeah i mean we live in a fallen world and so there's never going to be any kind of like a national government but even just any community you know you have rules in a community you have leaders in a community there's never going to be a system a structure or even just an individual person right who is not affected by 
the corruption of the world because of sin in their own hearts in systems and cultures and communities. Um, and so it's hard to find the balance that I think Christians are supposed to have between going, we've been given this commission, like you said, from the very beginning in the garden to rule and reign to steward creation. Uh, we have a picture in revelation of, you know, the new Jerusalem of a city of redeemed creation in which we will you know, be in a community that has, you know, a structure that has norms for how we interact with one another, that we serve, we do things to, you know, to help each other. That's a community. That's a kind of, you know, political world that we will be in one day. And so there's the good picture of that. And just like everything in the world created good by God, awaiting redemption, and yet in the middle corrupted by sin. And too often Christians kind of pick one end or the other of that. <laughs> Either government is just completely good and we should trust it. We should, you know, we'll go to Romans 13 about, you know, respecting government authority. And we'll be like, okay, you just do whatever they say. Or we'll fall in the other extreme and say completely corrupted, completely broken by sin. You know, we should either not be engaged at all, or we should resist it at every turn or whatever. And like most things in the world, there is a murky gray medium <laughs> Hmm. where we have to kind of hold in tension the places that scripture talks about respecting government authority, the places it talks about the goodness of humans engaging and community building and in governing, then the places where it talks about things like powers and principalities, where it talks about, you know, the way that authority is very often corrupted. You know, Jesus has that conversation about like the Gentiles lord this power over you, but that's not how you're supposed to interact with one another. So there's tension there. And most of the time when we get it wrong, it's because we've taken a tension that's in scripture and we've gone, I don't like that tension. That's really difficult. I'm just going to pick one or the other. And we get in trouble when we do that. And it's really, I mean, there's entire Christian traditions of thought about politics that I kind of think pick one or the other, and they're going to overemphasize either the brokenness or the goodness. And we have to kind of live in the middle between those two, recognizing that it's created good broken by sin and will be redeemed. Um, not that, you know, any system of government <laughs> is created good or will be redeemed, but that humans working in community, that in and of itself created good, broken, and will be redeemed. And what it looks like in eternity, we have pictures of in Revelation. We don't really know. <laughs> you know, it's impossible to kind of guess exactly or to speculate too much. Um, but I think at the, the end of the day, we can say there will be a way in which we build community together that will be redeemed. And so our goal now should be to work with the recognition that we will be sinful and broken as we try and do good things now, but try and create a glimpse, if we can, of what human community will look like one day when it's been redeemed. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is kind of when, you know, the focus on your book, when you talk about spiritual formation and you have these, um, these different ideas like, you know, liturgy, uh, prayer, um, Sabbath, there's uh what's the other one um well there's several right mm -hmm. um fasting right and how these this really shape us into in into the reality of a different kingdom right yeah. so when i think i mean to me it's just amazing to think you know jesus is king of kings right and lord of lords and at the same time like, you know, you've been saying we're part of this fallen world, but we've been given this commandment to like, you know, go and, and govern the earth and you know, take care of it. But at the same time, it's like when you submit your will to this other governance, it's when it actually allows you to interact with that world in mm -hmm. a better way, in a more, you know, empathetical way. 
with maybe a, a truer intention or purpose behind your actions that's authentic, right? That you are, you're seeking the, like you said in the book, right? The flourishing of your environment, the flourishing of your city, the flourishing yeah. of, of humanity. And that's, you know, you're not just like self-seeking, right? Because at the end, the idea of, uh, of the kingdom of Christ is to live for the community that he's preparing rather than egotistically, you know, living for ourselves. So I love how you, I mean, I love when you talk about the city of God and I want to, just for some reason, you know, a few years ago, I feel like, no, I want to tell this story. A few years ago, I was um, taking like videos on my phone. This app came out that said, oh, go and take a video. And th I mean, this is kind of related because it's about like news and media. So this app said, go and take a video of this event happening in whatever city. So you go with your phone and then you take the video and then just submit it to like, um, well, to the app and then newsrooms across mm -hmm. the US, if not across the world, will come to this website and see, oh, okay, that's that's a good video footage I need for my specific news that I'm gonna broadcast today, right? Mm -hmm. So they purchase it and whatever. So anyways, long story short, one of these requests said, okay, go to the city of Santa Ana here in Southern California. And the city of Santa Ana has the, what is it called where they, like the the governing palace or whatever <laughs> in the middle of the city. Uh, it was surrounded by homeless. Like the whole place was surrounded by uh, thousands of homeless. So it, it seems like the city said, how can we get rid of them? I don't know if they said this, but one of the ways in which they, they kind of like took care of the problem is like, we're going to have to rebuild parts of the building. So in doing so, they had to bring construction workers Right. So as they're moving in with big trucks and, you know, the, the not the tanks, but the <laughs> no, the the well, the big trucks with the cranes and uh -huh. stuff. Yeah. So they're moving in. And of course, now all the homeless are coming out of the, you know, the little yards and stuff. So the video request was go and film that. So I was like, oh, I mean, I'm uh, like I said, I'm a communications guy. So I'm like, oh, this seems interesting. Right. So I go there. I grab my phone and I just couldn't help but. You know, just like feel almost like pain and hurt for for like this displacement of the homeless. Yeah. And I know it's it's just a huge problem, right? And, and it has many ways to see it. But I went and sat down with one of them, and you know, sometimes homeless are not not completely mentally, you know, there. But I sat down with him, and he was telling me. I, I mean, they, they kind of ramble on, <laughs> but he said. Before I could even walk, I was already in the garden. And I, I recorded this, right? And just that phrase, before I could even walk, I was already in the garden. It just, to me, it spoke of the nature of, of humanity as image bearers. Right. Like you're saying that you no, know, we we were you no know, Adam and Eve in the garden, but we're really looking for the for the heavenly city. Right. So we go from garden to this idea of city. Yeah. And and this man who is is, is kind of not, not all there mentally, 
somehow is recognizing that you know his inner being his his part of him that got created is saying before i could even walk i was already in the garden and it just <laughs> it just almost like broke me down you know i'm like wow that's that's we are humans you know so when you look at somebody else no matter no matter what situation they're facing it's like i, I can see the image of god in you i can see mm-hmm. even like the goodness of god in you you know it might be covered by layers of no brokenness and whatever else but it's there you know it's it's there somehow uh tell me about this idea of the you say augustine's uh in augustine's writings he talks about this early city versus the city of god and the idea uh, of redemption in that sense. Yeah, yeah. So Augustine talks about, um, really helpfully, he says there's the city of God and the city, the earthly city. And rather than saying, like we would tend to say today, like church and state, right? Like there's the Christians and there's the world. He doesn't make that same distinction. He says there's the city of God, which is all believers, angels, like every being that is oriented towards God, that is oriented by their love of God, trying to glorify God, those kinds of things. And then there's the earthly city, which is all unbelievers, demons, like any being that God has created that has turned against him and is not oriented towards him. And both of those communities are united by their common love. So city of God is united by the common love of God. Earthly city united by common love of themselves, of material goods, of love that is intended to be given to God, but has been distorted and corrupted by sin. And so both of those communities exist everywhere. Like there's a little city of God and a little city of man in every church, in every country, in every family, like it's not as neatly divided as we tend to think. And the reason I think his description of the earthly city and the city of God are so helpful is because instead of just thinking, well, on earth, there's like the church, which is sacred and the school, which is secular, or like the government, which is secular and, you know, my Christian family, which is sacred or whatever. Instead, those divisions don't exist on the same lines. There can be a little bit of the city of of God in the government, if there's a believer there who is trying to seek the redemption of his of his community, of individual people that he loves, you know, there can be a little city of man, of the earthly city, in the church. If there's an unbeliever who is, you know, trying to to not be oriented towards love of God, and so I think it's helpful because it helps us see, instead of just saying, you know, as Christians we are supposed to kind of stay in our little huddle in the church and not be engaged in any of this worldly stuff. Instead, it's saying, you know, we can be represented. In fact, we are representatives of the city of God everywhere we go and all the kinds of work that we do. And in fact, that city of God that will one day be, you know, fully realized on earth when God, you know, when Christ returns and redeems creation, restores it, that city of God, it, it still won't, right? Like right now it's not contained in just the church and eventually it will not be contained at all because it will be everywhere. And so you being faithful in your work, whether that's, you know, farming or parenting or, you know, being a social worker or being in a public school or being a politician or whatever it is, that work can be a representative of what the city of God will one day be. It just, it will be messy because it will involve the intermingling, the interaction of those two cities. They will be in conflict. They will be divided until Christ returns. And so instead of just saying, okay, well, the stuff I do in the church, that's more important than any of the other work I do. I think his picture helps us see like 
being faithful, trying to glorify God in whatever work you do, whatever possibilities are available to you, that is representing the city of God well. And when you're given political options, whether that's voting between two different people or whether that's, okay, how do I volunteer in this space? Or how do I you know, write a letter to, a, to an elected official or you know, make a phone call on behalf of someone instead of asking, you know, what's the most pragmatic thing I can do? Or what's the most politically efficient thing I can do? Instead, you can say, which of these options before me looks more like the city of God and her orientation, the common love of God and, and the common love of God that always results in seeking the flourishing of our neighbors, the good of the city that we've bred and brought into. And that just op like opens up more possibilities for us to be creative in the way we serve in the world, the way we engage politically, all of those kinds of things. Instead of just saying, well, there's the right answer and the wrong answer. <laughs> and there's the Christian way to vote and the Christian, you know, instead it's like, we have possibilities, we have creative opportunities to be strategic, to work with other people, to see connections between different kinds of work that we might not normally see. Um, and I think that's a, a more faithful way for us to engage. Yeah, and you said it um, in the book, political imagination as an idea of why American evangelicals need creativity, right? So I think it's it's a little bit of what you're talking about right now. Yeah. And I would love to almost like make, I made my own summary <laughs> of my takeaways from your book. And is this one. God has a political candidate. The king of God's kingdom is Jesus. And we are his ambassadors. That's my summary. That's my own idea. And I want to end with two questions. But before I get to the second question... The first question would be to your choosing. So I'm going to have three questions and then you pick whichever you want okay. of those three and that will be the first question. Okay. So first option, option A, why can't we serve two masters? That's A. And B, why can the church be discriminatory? And then C, what's the role of community in politics? Hmm. <laughs> I think I think I'm gonna go with C. All right. Um, because I like I like that question a lot. Um, I think too often we tend to think of politics just in terms of, especially the presidential election. We'll be like, who do I vote for for president? Um, if we think about it a little bit bigger, we might think, well, who do I vote for for all kinds of you know for Senate, for you know local offices, whatever. And we just think that's my political engagement is I just vote and I vote the right way and I try and do my research and and you know sometimes churches will give like a voting guide or something you vote the right way that's your political engagement. And I think that word community is so important because politics really encompasses all of the ways that we seek our common life together. So that includes the way we vote. It includes the places that we serve in our community. You know, the community center that I go down the street to go to vote at, you know, every couple of years also has all sorts of other things that serves my community. And so, you know, I can vote there, but I can also, you know, mentor kids in the public school down the street who might not have a lot of, you know, adults in their life that can kind of help them make some good choices in the future. Um, it involves like the crisis pregnancy center that's down the street from me that's doing like really incredible work in that neighborhood. And so thinking about politics as making a common life together 
opens up possibilities for things. So it says like, I vote for the things that I care about, but my vote can never fully contain everything I care about, right? I'm always making a choice that's difficult. Like if it's between two candidates for presidential election, for example, one person might have some things that I agree with, the other person might have other things. Some One person might represent some of the things I care about, the other person might represent some of the other things I care about. And so I make a choice, I try to be as faithful and wise as I possibly can, but that that's not the end of the story. So if I had to vote for someone and they, they kind of represented some of the things I care about, but not everything, then how can I take those other things that I care about and serve in my community or write a letter or make a phone call, advocate for those things in all sorts of other ways and too often, I feel like in the church, if we're going to have a conversation about politics, it's make sure you vote the right way. It's not how can we as a community, because we are our own community as well in the church, how can we be a force for good in our larger community, not just by the way we vote, but by the way we serve, by the way we care, you know, we take care of people if they have needs that we can care for. Um, and not thinking of that as like, that's not political, but my voting is political. It's all political in the sense that it deals with our common life together. And I think the important thing about thinking about it in that all encompassing way is that it just takes some weight off of our vote. Our vote is important, but it's not the end of everything that we can do for our community. We have all of these other things that we can do. And so it gives you a little, like, like we talked about creativity from some freedom to just, you know, vote, try and be as faithful as you can, and then do all sorts of other things that represent all of the other things that God cares about as well. Yeah. Well said. And as I think of, democracy and this is before you know before i go to the last question it's not a question i'm just just kind of like rambling in my thinking right now um this idea of voting and even you know your book and politics it's it really is for as long as a democracy works right um well in the sense of voting but the idea of the kingdom of god is relevant in any type of uh, you know, governing way. Like yeah. it could be a kingdom, it could be right the, the new world order, whatever it might be. Uh, the kingdom of God still works and the kingdom of God is still expressed, like you're saying, you know, in, in community, in relationships. And as I think of that, this is the last question because I love coffee. And in your book, you talk about coffee and its relationship to politics. How is coffee related to politics? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I So I gave an example in the book of how, you know, coffee, like a coffee bean, this natural resource God created, and then we take it and we, there it is, <laughs> we take it <laughs> and we you know, add human creativity to it. Someone at some point had to say, okay, I'm going to roast this thing. I'm going to grind it. I'm going to add hot water to it and create this drink. Um, over time, people added all sorts of other things <laughs> to add to the coffee to, you know, make it taste different ways. And that's, you know, something we'll talk about. That's been an example I've heard at least in the church of like God's creation and then human creativity added to it. But the added level, I think on top of that, and that gets into the politics stuff is at some point someone had had coffee before and they thought, I'd like to sell this thing. And so they, they created, you know, a business to sell the coffee. And maybe in the creation of their business, they also thought like, well, at some point, I don't want to just sell coffee, right? We have so many coffee shops. It's not just because we all love drinking coffee. It's also because someone along the line said, let's make this a really beautiful space where people can come and, and meet a friend or do some homework or, you know, I'm going to create a space that looks beautiful, that has comfy chairs, that maybe has like outlets so people can plug their laptops in. You know, they created this beautiful thing that's not just about 
drinking coffee. It's also about community. And then people that come to share in that thing, to do work, to meet someone, maybe they're being creative because they've met someone there to think up a new thing that they're going to do, some business or some community organizing thing or some school that they want to create, or maybe they're starting a church, you know, so there's more creativity that's even added on to that. And I gave that picture just to say, politics is not just who to vote for for president or who to vote for for city council or whatever. It's those things. Those things matter. It's also saying, how should we as a community work together? You know, a coffee shop is an example of at some point someone saying, I want to foster a certain kind of community. So I'm going to create a space that does that. I'm going to create a space that welcomes you to have, you know, your meeting or your homework. There are other coffee shops that don't do that, right? Like either the chairs aren't comfortable or they don't have a lot of space to work or the coffee isn't good or whatever. That's, a, you know, a decision about how to create a community or not to create a community, you know, in the neighborhood that you put your coffee shop in, that changes what kind of community will be there. And so to me, it's a picture of from the very beginning, from the very beginning of creation, when God has given us these natural resources for us to add creativity to, there will always be situations in which we will end up figuring out what are the rules for how we relate to one another? What are the rules for the way our community will function and organize? And I think a coffee shop is a good example of we all are bringing our creativity. We're all kind of um, making something, whether that's the coffee that the person who owns the shop creates or whether that's the, you know, business ideas, the church that's starting, whatever. And there will be rules and norms for how we relate to one another in this space. And those things are true when it comes to the roads that we, you know, make the schools that we create on a really broad level, but it's even true in a small thing like a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. Love it. I feel like the, the, the coffee example right now, I'm picturing like a microscopic take on politics. And I'm thinking of America in the world, mm -hmm. almost as a macroscopic lens into how politics play a role in the world. Well, Caitlin, this is phenomenal. I, I'm just so thankful you know, for your insight, even you know, for, for writing this book. Again, you know, for people that are listening, highly recommend. It's just so good. And I think um, it, it's way beyond just you know, presidential election. Even wherever you're in the world, this is about spiritual formation and how politics is part of of who we are as humans in governing our surroundings and doing it uh, you know with a with the lens of of Christ in our approach and how we do it so um, I think people are gonna love it you know people you know it doesn't matter when you get it get it please it's so good um, do you want to say anything else do you want to you know pinpoint for sure we'll have the book on our on our website but do you want to say you know where people can find you maybe or things like that yeah yeah you can buy the book wherever you regularly buy books and you can go to caitlinshess.com to to find more links to the book or to find i wrote some uh prayers and practices for the election season and even though the election season is over there will be a new one before you know it so you can also go there to, to find those yeah so good thank you so much caitlin you feel thank like you. we satisfied all all the um, no, all the ideas of the book. Well, I guess not, right? But <laughs> you enough, feel satisfied enough. with what you said? <laughs> yes, thank you so much. Okay, thank <laughs> you. Thank you for tuning in to the Christian Podcast with Petrino.
thanks for listening to this episode of Christian Podcast. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. Make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review wherever you can. You can also visit christianpodcast.com to learn more about our show. Hasta la vista.